Hope you had a wonderful Christmas, but for those of you who are tired of it, it's not over yet. <laughs> so we've already seen people throw out their Christmas trees, and maybe you're one of those people who, you know, sun goes down on the 25th or <laughs> first thing on the 26th, and you get, t- pull all the lights down, get it all away. Uh, but actually, uh, Christmas is, we're just right in the middle of it. So historically, Christmas actually starts on the 25th, and it goes until the 6th of January. So you know that really annoying song that people sing about all of those weird gifts? 12, or the first day of Christmas, right? On and on and on. Those 12 days of Christmas is the 12 days from the 25th to the 6th of January. And you might be thinking, who gives partridges and pear trees for presents? It's very strange. Uh, but it's, it's pointing out this, this celebration time, which we're actually right now in the midst of. And so today is the fifth day of Christmas. Uh, I don't have any golden rings for you, but we do have 24 golden crowns, and I think that's better. So this is the first week of a four-week series we're calling Acts. Uh, It's a series on prayer, and Acts is just a a model, an acrostic uh, for thinking about prayer, as we see in Scripture. So uh, you can see here Acts. Uh, Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So this isn't like some, you know, super spiritual biblical model that we pulled out of some verse. It's just a way of saying, okay, what are the main things we see going on in prayer throughout Scripture? Oh, we see these elements. Okay, we want to make sure we include all of those elements when we're praying so that we can be fuller prayers. prayers. And a lot of times we have default prayers we pray, right? So maybe you pray thanks before a meal, which is great, right? All of our, everything we have is a gift from God. We should thank Him for it. Uh, we're especially good at supplication, right? God, this is what I need. Can you help me in this situation? Are right, really good at asking for things? Makes sense. Um, but we're not always quite as good at the adoration or the confession or, or kind of putting all those things in context, right? So that our adoration and our confession are, shape our thanksgiving or that all of those things shape the kinds of things we pray for and ask for, right? That these are all tied together. And they're all tied together because prayer simply most simply, is just talking to God. And God is really big and multifaceted, right? God, God is complex. Uh, I'm going to say the opposite of that in a minute. But God is, is uh, much fuller than we are, right? And so all of these different ways of talking to God, and we'll see that in this passage today. There's all these different ways of approaching God and engaging with God. And so we want to do that in as many ways as we can, right? God is not a one-dimensional uh, being. So, uh, like I said, some of us, we're not always very good at this. Sometimes we talk to God like the awkward relative you only see at Christmas. They're like, you want to be nice to them because you want them to keep giving you presents, but you really don't know them at all. <laughs> or maybe your boss, right? You want to be good because he's your boss and you get in trouble, but you don't really like your boss that much. Uh, or some people have, you know, sort of the best buddy relationship with, like, hey, Jesus is my homie and we just hang out. And, you know, the last one is, is not terrible, but it, it's missing out on some of the fuller aspects of who God is. So we want to spend the next four weeks learning how to pray to God. How do we engage with the God of the universe? And we'll do that both through, obviously, the, the sermons as we're, we're preaching, the songs that we're singing. You'll see each of them tied into those themes, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And then the prayers we'll be praying together as well will each be tied into that. So why do we sometimes struggle with adoration of God? 
and maybe it's because our picture of God is just too small, right? I don't think we have a failure to praise in general. I think this is something we are created to do. We, we do it just automatically. Maybe it's an incredible touchdown, uh, the game, or the epic Star Wars film, or just beautiful Christmas decorations, right? You just feel moved, and, and you feel you have, to, you have to praise it. You have to talk about how great it is, how, how amazing it is, and you're, you're in awe. And these things, I think those are good. I think we should praise things like that. But if those things don't point us to the ultimate good, then they become just distractions, right? They, they, they're lesser goods that need to point us to the ultimate good. It's sort of like if you, if you only ever saw the reflection, if you see the light of the moon, right? And it's, it's beautiful in the sky, but it's just a reflection of the sun. All you're, all you're getting is a reflection. But if you actually see the sun, it's like, wow, that's so much bigger and more vibrant than, than the moon is, right? And it, the moon has its own beauty, but it, it's just beautiful because it's reflecting the sun. See the relationship there? So who is this God who is transcendent over all those things? Um, and how do we engage with him? So we want to say that God is transcendent, okay? No, no big surprise there. But also why that is good news for us, that God is transcendent. So if you look at Revelation 4, uh, which you may already be turned to, hopefully, so you can join me there. It's the last book of the Bible, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. Now, the book of Revelation itself is a very weird book, right? It's a lo- we don't always know what to do with it. Uh, the scholars call it a, uh, they'll, they'll categorize it as a prophetic epistle in apocalyptic mode, which just means it's a letter from John to these churches, Right? It's a word from God, so it's, it's prophetic. Right? He's saying, God wants to say this to you. Uh, and it's written in a style which is called apocalyptic. So there were other, other works written in this style. So all the weird images and symbols and numbers. and it's, just, it's a way of writing to both unveil something and conceal something at the same time. Right? So it's sort of like a coded language of saying, I know it looks like this is what's going on, but actually this is what's going on. So I know that it looks like, you know, Nero is the emperor over the whole known world, and he's in charge of everything and has power over everything and has all the authority. Actually, Nero's just like this evil dragon dude. You know who's really on the throne? God. God is on the throne. And the lamb, that's who's really reigning over everything. All right, so John is trying to peel back the layers on reality and say, I know it looks like this is what's going on, but actually... Actually, this is what God is doing behind the scenes. So if we look at this passage, we have the one on the throne who's just described as a bunch of gems, right? It's like just types of gems. Uh, we have jasper, carnelian, and then around the throne we have a rainbow or a bow that has the appearance of an emerald. And then we have a bunch of really crazy creatures, right? You read that and you're like, what is going on with these weird creatures, right? There's nothing that we can look at in our world that looks anything like this. Um, well, to understand the book of Revelation, you actually have to go back to a lot of the Old Testament. A lot of the imagery we see throughout Revelation is actually being drawn from Old Testament prophecy. So we have an, several more uh, throne room visions just like this in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Does that sound familiar? And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah has a vision of the throne. He sees these crazy creatures flying around the throne, and his response is to fall down in worship uh, and confession, which we'll get to next week. We see this also in Ezekiel. So in Ezekiel chapter 1, 26, we have another vision of the throne. So first, I skipped the section on all the crazy creatures. So Ezekiel describes something kind of similar. There's like wheels and fire and creatures. And then verse 26 says, Above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness a throne of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. And we get another, the same vision, or similar vision here in Daniel chapter 7. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, his hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So we've got four different visions of this throne room, right? And we see a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of little differences. The creature is described differently. The throne is described a little bit differently. Sometimes we get an appearance of the one on the throne, and in Revelation, we never see the one on the throne, and I think at one level, this tells us that these images are, are sort of multivalent, right? It's like, it's like seeing like a, a gem, and every time you turn in the face, right, you see different aspects of it. And I think it's because the thing that they're trying to describe is so beyond what we can imagine that there's really no way of putting it into words, right? It's literally beyond description. And so, so John is like, it's, it's kind of like this, and it's kind of like that, and it looks like this thing, and it's got this, and, and it all just sounds really crazy to us because... He can't even really conceive of what he's seeing. Right? It's just so mind-boggling how, how glorious and amazing God is. But we do get, we can see certain things from uh, consistent things here in these scenes that do tell us things about what's going on. So we've got the throne, right, which represents authority, power, right? Kings sit on thrones. Emperors sit on thrones. What's with the creatures who are covered in eyes? Uh, well, People tend to say, well, they're, they're covered in eyes because they're always seeing more of God, right? So they're flying around God. They're flying around the throne room, and they're covered in eyes. Every time they're turning, they're seeing more and more and more, and their response is always, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, 
as they see endlessly more of God, they, they become more overwhelmed by how glorious and worthy God is of worship. Uh, some commentators will suggest that the, these creatures represent, in some way, all of creation, because they sort of, they're like the, the pinnacle of each type of animal, uh, as they were seen in the ancient worlds. So you have the lion, which is sort of the, the king of the wild beasts, right? You have the ox, which is the, the sort of greatest or the biggest of the, land, the agricultural animals. Humans, uh, which are sort of the, the rational animals. And then the eagle, which is the you know, greatest of the, of the birds in the sky. I don't know, they clearly didn't care a whole lot about fish. So all of creation is responding with this worship to God. Just over and over, creation is just crying out the praises of who God is. Then in this scene, we have these elders, right? So we've got these 24 other thrones, and we've got 24 elders seated on the thrones. Now, who are these people? Generally, anytime you see any kind of multiple of 12, especially in a book like Revelation, it's probably referring to the tribes of Israel and or the apostles, right? Which might represent all the people of God and the church, something like that. So we see this in uh, the end of Revelation. If you were here a couple weeks ago, Robert preached on this at the end of the last series, that in the, new, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, we have 12 foundations and we have 12 gates. And those are the, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. So we get the, all of the people of God, right? The, the Old Testament people, Israel, and the New Testament people, which is everyone who's been brought in to God's covenant. Um, so this is, these are sort of representative of the people of God. And what are they doing? They're taking their crowns, their 12, I mean the 24, these golden crowns, and they're, they're prostrating themselves and casting them at the feet of God, taking all of their earthly power and authority and, and everything that that represents and just saying, all, all of it is yours, God. And they're just kneeling before him. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we get all these different images that are happening in this throne room, right? And I think they're all kind of pointing to the same thing, which is this transcendence of God. And it's kind of like, maybe think of like a, a kaleidoscope. You have, you guys seen, right, some of you have experienced these at some point in your life, right? You look through the little telescope thing, and as you twist it, the image shifts. And it's kind of, it's the same set of colors and images, but each time you shift it, they change, and they're interacting in a slightly different way, and it morphs and shifts, and yet you're kind of seeing the same thing. And I think that's kind of what we're getting in these throne room scenes, right? It's, it's the image is, is shifting a bit, and it's all, it's slightly different every time, and yet it's all getting at this thing which is beyond description, that God is transcendent, and God is holy. And that's the, that's the language that we get here, right? The holiness of God. And there are different ways to think about what does it mean that God is transcendent or God is holy. And I think the most common way we tend to think about it is to think about God as sort of being infinite, right? So like us, but just a lot, a lot bigger, right? Much, much, much bigger. And just to do a little kind of thought uh, experiment here, get your, your juices flowing. Um, here we are. Oh, you, well, we're the third one out, if you didn't know. Uh, that giant thing on the other side is the sun. Now, that sun is n just under 93 million miles away. It's a long ways. If you were to get in your car and drive on 90, and for some reason it suddenly changed directions and you were going towards the sun, 
which feels like that when you're driving east in the mornings. Uh, if you were to drive 60 miles per hour at 24 hours a day, it would take you 176 years to get to the sun. I mean, think about the longest road trip you've ever been on. <laughs> 24 hours a day, 176 years. Even a commercial jet at 550 miles per hour would take 19 years at 24 hours a day. Have you ever been on like a long international flight? Like I flew to Asia one time, 16 hours. It was like a whole day on an airplane, right? It just, you feel like you're never gonna get off this thing. Now 19 years. <laughs> Excuse me. So that's just our tiny solar system. And just for some perspective, this is the, do you have the next one? That's just like the proportionality, right? There's the sun, and the dot you can barely see up there is the earth. Like, it's really big. Now, <clears throat> today, we're fairly confident the Milky Way, so that's our entire galaxy, is probably between 100,000 and 150,000 light years across. So, uh, okay, this is hard to make out, but there's the Earth, there it is next to the Sun, you can't even see it. There's our solar system in the midst of our galaxy, you can't even see it. Uh, and then, oh, there's, there's our galaxy, there's our galaxy among other galaxies, you've got the Andromeda galaxy, it's our closest one. Then you've got a super galaxy cluster, a whole cluster of super, or super clusters, and then you have the observable universe. So it's just the like, zoom out for you. According to some current thinking right now, the, the diameter of the observable universe is probably around 93 billion light years. I mean, I, I can't even comprehend, like that doesn't, that doesn't do anything in my brain, right? My brain just like, eh, eh, fail, like can error compute. Um, like I, I, don't even, I can't even comprehend 93 million miles, let alone, <laughs> let alone, over 90 billion light years. That's, yeah. So as, as just mind-blowing this is, right? And, I, and I, sometimes I picture in my head like God holding it all, right? Just like all this cluster of stars and it's just like in God's hand. Like that's how big God is. But as, as magnificent as it is, and I think this is good because it's awe-inspiring to us, right? Like, wow, God is, is so big. I don't actually think we should think of God as being infinite in this way. I think we should think of God as being infinite. So not just like endlessly measurable, right? Like God is just way bigger than anything that exists. But that actually God is just immeasurable, right? God is not the kind, it's not that God is too big, it's that God is not the kind of thing which can be measured. There's, I came across this really well put uh, in this Tolkien class I was taking this semester. We're reading some of his other works, and there's a, this, com this theological conversation between a human and an elf. Uh, so I'm going to share this with you. So this is this woman, this human woman. She says, But they speak of Eru, this god, himself, entering in Arda, which is the world. And that, that is a thing wholly different. How could he, the greater, do this? Would it not shatter Arda? Or indeed, all Ea? Now, Finrod, the old wise elf, responds, When you say greater, you think of the dimensions of Arda, in which the greater vessel cannot be contained in the lesser. But such words may not be used of the measureless. 
See, God is not this big thing that's outside the universe that's just like standing out there kind of holding it. Because God is not a big thing at all. God is not a thing in the universe. Right? God is, is utterly measureless. And this is what it means for God to be holy, is that God is wholly other. Right? He's not just bigger and better than we are. It's like he's completely other than everything else in creation. There's nothing like God. There's nothing to whom we can compare God. Some of the, these transcendent attributes, I think, really help get at this. And uh, if you uh, haven't yet, you should check out the last series we just finished for the MHU podcast series, Puzzles About God. Uh, it was all about these attributes of God and, and looking at who God is. But this first one uh, is aseity. And this just means self-existence. God is self-existent. It means no one else gives God being or causes God to exist. But it means everything else that exists in the world is contingent. Everything else doesn't have to exist, right? Everything else you see in the world, it could just cease to exist any moment. And at some moment, it came into being. But God is not like that. God is the only necessary being. God has to exist. Because only because God exists can anything else exist. So what, what it, when we say that that we talk about reality, right? We have God and we have not God. And everything that is not God is totally, utterly dependent on God. And the only reason anything else can exist is because God literally gives himself to it. God gives and shares his existence with things, and that's why things exist. Paul gets at this, I think, in uh, Acts, Acts chapter 17. He's, he's in Athens talking to the philosophers, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. God is not off somewhere in the distance. God is the one holding everything in existence at every moment. Another way in which God is very different from us is that God is simple. Right? So when I say God is simple, I don't mean in terms of like not being complex or something like that, right? But God is simple in that God is not made up of parts. So God doesn't have a body, for one, right? God is, is spirit. Uh, but God doesn't have a bunch of things inside him that are competing. So think about us, right? We have our desires and our will and our emotions and our reason. And these things are always in conflict, right? You're like, oh, I really want that other piece, of co- other piece of cake. You know, you're at Christmas dinner, you've already had all the food, and you're like, oh, just one more cookie. Uh, maybe I shouldn't do it. I don't know. I'm going to feel sick tomorrow, right? We're, we're living in this constant tension between what we want and what we know, and God is not like that, right? God, uh, for God, all of these things are one in God. His love, his justice, his mercy. It's why the Bible says that God is love. God is justice. God is, is these things, because these aren't just parts of God that God's like, oh, I'm going to be more loving today. Oh, I'm going to be, no, God's love is just, God's justice is always loving. 
Right? These things are always one in God. Another way we see, see this is God's eternality. That God, uh, in this passage, right, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That God is not in time in the way that we are in time. But God <clears throat> uh, exists in, outside of, uh, is a traditional view, is that God exists outside of time. And in his, when, he, when God presents himself to Moses, right, the burning bush, he introduces himself as I am, right? This word Yahweh or, or Jehovah is just this Hebrew word. It's basically the Hebrew verb to be. He's just, God is like, I, I just, I am, right? I, I am the thing which is by which all else exists. I am, I am God. There's no one like me. And because of this, we would say that God doesn't change, and I think this is a weird one for us when we talk about the, the technical term people use, immutability. Like, well, what do you mean God doesn't change? It seems like a bad thing, right? Like, if God doesn't change, then God's, like, just static, and that's boring or something. But God doesn't change because God is perfect. And if you're perfect, you can't change. <laughs> because if you're perfect, you couldn't become more perfect. Because if you became more perfect, you wouldn't be perfect, because <laughs> you could be more so. And certainly God couldn't become less perfect because then he would not be perfect anymore. So for God to be perfect is for God to not change. God is already fully love and justice and all of his attributes. God already is fully those things. And so God doesn't change in the way we change from day to day. So we have this transcendent picture of God who is holy and holy other. But we shouldn't make us then think that God is somehow impersonal, right? God is not just like a force out there in the world. In fact, we want to say that God is three persons. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see all three in the throne room. So in this passage, we have the one who is on the throne, which you know from the, the rest of this section that is referring to, we think it's probably referring to God the Father, uh, but then in this scene, you have, uh, in verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, uh, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And some, uh, some commentators will talk about this as like the sevenfold spirit of God, right? This, this is the Holy Spirit. And the reason that you get the, the multiplicity is that the Holy Spirit is sort of the way God is like personalizing in relating to each of us, right? The Spirit is dwelling in us, and so we're all one in Christ, and yet there's this diversity in the Spirit. The Spirit is dwelling in us. You see this at Pentecost, where the Spirit comes, and all of a sudden you get all these different languages, right? The Spirit is the one who, who sort of brings the, the individuality, if that makes sense. Um, and so we have this, this seven spirits, the sevenfold Spirit. And uh, we don't see it exactly here, but if we turn uh, back to Revelation chapter 1 and then forward to chapter 5, we see Christ at the center of the throne room. So if you turn with me two, two pages or so back to chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstand was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. 
The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. You remember this imagery from Daniel? This is Daniel's description of the Ancient of Days seated on the throne. It is now being described in almost the exact same description of the ascended Christ. In Revelation 5, we see a very different picture of Christ. So if you turn to uh, now chapter 5, so back to where we were, and then page later. Uh, starting in verse 6, it says, Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down. And worshipped. And so we get this, this incredible throne room vision, right? Where everyone is worshiping the one on the throne. And a similar vision to what we've seen in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And here at the middle of the throne is the Lamb who was slain. And now we see worship from the angels and the creatures and the elders all being directed not just to the one on the throne, but to the one in the midst of the throne room, the Lamb. Who was slain. And so this is why I think most fully in Christ do we see how this transcendent God, who is holy and holy other, is actually so utterly near and close to us. In Christ, we see that God is not in competition with his creation, right? Because if God was just another big object in the world, He'd take up space the way we do, and we'd all have to, you know, we'd all be moving around, and, and yeah, there'd be competition, right? But because God is not like us, he's not a thing in the world, there is no competition between us and God, between God and his creation. And so God, who is so holy and so holy other, can also be completely near us, holding us together, closer to us than we are to ourselves. And we can pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, 
because he is our Father, intimate and near, and yet he is holy and other. And so Christmas really is all about this idea that that the truth that God is with us. And so in some ways the incarnation is totally unique, and yet it's also a, a true reflection of who God always is and always has been and always will be. That God is God with us and for us. That he was always there sustaining all of creation. The, the problem of sin was not a problem for God, right? It didn't push God away. We turned and ran away from God. And God comes and chases after us. And so in the incarnation, we see the, the God's holy transcendent nature being joined to a finite, material, changeable human nature in the one person of Christ. That God is, this God who is holy other is also God who is here and God with us. So that's the good news of the transcendence of God. That because God is so other, God can be so near. Because God is not a thing in our world. And yet he can come and become a thing in our world in Christ. So that we can look at and behold him. See, in John's scene, in John's throne room scene, you never see the one on the throne, right? The one on the throne is always just described in, like, as light and, and like, gems. and th- you, n- you never see the one on the throne, right? Because Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light. We can't see God. And yet, Paul also tells us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. That God, who we can't see or, or approach Right, in his otherness, comes to, uh, to us in a way we can see and touch and comprehend. Right, just as Christ puts his hand on John, right, the transcendent, ascendant Christ puts his hand down on John and touches him. In Christ, God most fully reveals that he is with us as a human person. And he doesn't just come to walk among us, but he comes to die for us as the lamb that was slain, and to rise again back to that place of transcendence as now this person who is fully divine and fully human. So if you're here and and you're not a Christian and you don't know this this God who is transcendent, all the the things that you're praising in this world, most of them are probably good things but they don't even begin to compare with the holiness of God. All those things are, are just pointing to the greatness of the one who made it all and holds it all together. And the invitation to you this morning is that in Christ you can know that God. More intimately and more personally than you know yourself because that's how closely he knows you. If you're here and, and you are a Christian, then we want to practice and get better at adoring this God, to grow in our, our picture of who God is, right? This God who is beyond our imagining and our comprehension. One way that I thought of uh, thinking about this was to, to learn the names of God. I think there are some churches where this is like a popular thing to do. People like can list off all the names of God, but it's kind of a, a pretty cool thing, right? Because God's names describe things about who God is, and they're mostly all really big things. Right? God our Savior, God our King, um, 
God the Lord, like all, all these transcendent names of God. There's actually a practice in Islam of the 99 names of God. And so people will do is they'll memorize the 99 names of God and they'll just recite them over and over and over and over and over again. Um, which, you know, if you do it in this sort of ritualistic, like I'm trying to, you know, make, make earn my salvation kind of way, uh, which is what it tends to be. Uh, obviously, that's not helpful. But if we're like, oh, I want to grow in, in my knowledge of how amazing and big God is, how glorious and, and holy God is, I think it's a really cool way to do that, is to, to learn some of the names of God and, and begin to meditate on those and use them while you're praying. Another way to do this, I think, is to actually engage with God in nature. Because like I said, in, in Christ, we see that just because God is holy and other doesn't mean that God is somewhere off there. It means God is actually right here, and he's working through creation in the world. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I definitely find when I'm experiencing nature that it leads me to worship. And I f- find it hard being here sometimes <laughs> because growing up in California, this is much easier to do in a lot of ways. We had mountains everywhere, and if you ever stood on top of a mountain, I mean, it's just, you can't not be in awe, right? It's just the, the vast expanse, and you feel so, so small. Or the other one is standing next to the ocean. I love just, you just, you stand there, and you just look out on what feels like eternity. I mean, it just, it just goes on, and, and you just feel so small beside this vastness. And that, that's our sort of awe before God, right? It's just, I am so small, and God is so glorious. So I encourage you to, to do that, to, to get out, go for a walk, <laughs> put down the, the screen and all the other things, and just to see the wonder and glory of what God is doing in the world and the things that he has made and created. And, and not, don't think of creation as like, oh, that's a thing that happened one time in the past, right? Whether it was thousands or millions of years ago. It just it was an event. You know, creation is what God is doing at every moment, holding everything together. So be in awe of that. And finally, probably the most obvious one uh, is to, to look at Christ. Behold Christ, because he is the image of the invisible God, right? This God that we, we can't see or comprehend, we, we see the most perfect picture of in Christ. And we praise him for his kindness, his mercy, his love, his justice, his patience, all these temporal acts, these things we see Jesus doing, ultimately this display of his love on the cross, which we're told is, is God's ultimate display of love. All of these are a reflection of who God really is in eternity. This is God's character. This is who God is. That's who we see in Christ. And so we can know and draw near to this holy other God in Christ. So that's why we come to this table week after week, because we want to, at the center of our worship, have the lamb that was slain, the one who most visibly manifest to us the glory of the transcendent God. And God gave us physical things to do this, right? Like Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Just as God had taken on a physical body to die on the cross, to walk among us, to resurrect. So he gives us physical things that we can take and we can eat and drink and be reminded and to commune with him and remember his glory, the glory of this transcendent God who not only came to walk among us, but came to die for us.
so that we could be united with him. So, uh, my, if you're here and you're a Christian, then our invitation is for you to come and join us at the table. Uh, in Christ, the almighty transcendent God is our Savior and King, and he invites us to dine with him at his table in expectation of a day when we will see him face to face. All right, that's what this table is looking forward to, and we're going to sit down with Christ, and we're going to see that God on the throne, we're going to see him face to face in a way that right now we can't even begin to imagine, and it's going to be glorious. And so that's the, the foretaste, the, 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 the glimpse that you get this morning as you come up and you receive the bread and take the cup, is you get this little taste of, wow, I'm going I'm to experience glory with God. I'm going to know this transcendent God and see him face to face. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, I invite you right now just to remain at your seat and to ponder and wonder about this God who is so holy and so glorious. And uh, during that time, some of us will be at the back. We'd love to pray for you, or you can come back and pray for us. Um, but yeah, I'm going to pray and invite our communion servers to come up. Father, we worship you as the holy God, the one who is above all, who is incomparable, and yet who is here with us right now, sustaining, the, giving us breath in our lungs. Thank you, God, that you not only came to dwell with us, but came to uh, die for us, God, that we could be reunited with you, Lord, and that we could see your glory and your love in Christ. Would you fill us with awe this morning as we gaze upon you and help us to lift high your matchless name in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.